my phone that fits in perfectly with what I'm talking about. It said that my bank account had been hacked and that I had a security issue that I needed to click this link, log in, give them my information so that they could fix the security issue. And so I called my bank and they said, there has been no security issue, your card's not on hold or anything, but that was a scam. And this is something that the hackers and the scammers are starting to do now. They're starting to send you messages pretending to be security people trying to get you to give them their information um, so that you can get so that they can get all your information and then really scam you. Um, it's obviously something that a lot of people can fall into because when somebody says your bank account's been hacked, you start panicking and you want to fix it, right? And so they're acting like they're people who can help you. And throughout life, there's people who are going to try to trick you. Some people are trying to sell stuff that's not um, correct, that's not uh, what it claims to be. There's a lot of people in our world that try to deceive, whether it's on your phone, whether it's security, whether it's selling you something that you think is going to work. People, humanity in general, uh, is known for being liars. And as Paul writes to Titus, he's writing to a person who's been put on an island full of people who are called liars. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. It's full of people who are scammers. It's full of people who are not following the truth. And yet we, as we read this, I'm sure, can see some of these themes pop up in our world today, right? There are many, many people who try to teach things that sound like the truth, but that are not the truth. Some pastors, some preachers will say things like this, that Jesus was a good teacher, but that he was not sinless, that Jesus was not sinless and in fact did sin during his time on earth. We know that's wrong. We know that Christ was sinless. We know that Christ was perfect while he was here on earth. Some say that a loving God won't send you to hell, that a loving God won't send anyone to hell, but that he's going to let you off at the end, that he's going to make it all right when you get up to heaven with him. And we know that God is just. We know that God, while he loves us, he has a perfect standard of righteousness that man does not live up to. Some say that God is important, that he's a good person, but that the only way we can really fix ourselves is by looking deeper within ourselves, by following our hearts. And the Bible tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked, that they are deceitful above all things, and that only God can understand the depths of our hearts. Some say that the gospel is a good way to get to heaven, but that there's other ways to get to heaven, that it's one of many paths, that there's a lot of different ways where you can meet Jesus. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. And if you're wondering why I'm not mentioning specific pastors or people by name, it is because there are so many people who are preaching this that I could not list them all in this sermon. The world, even our world today, is full of people who are trying to teach things that sound like the truth, but that are not the truth. And this was true for Titus. This was true for Paul. And so Paul gives us this passage in the book of Titus after he's just been explaining how to establish a well-ordered church, how to appoint elders. He's telling us the reason we need to do these things is because there are people in the world who are trying to deceive you. There's people in the world who are trying to scam you, who are trying to get you to buy into whatever they are selling. And we must be 
very careful. What I think Paul is trying to tell Titus is this, that we must examine and rebuke false teachers. We, as a church, we as individual Christians, must examine and rebuke false teachers. And that's what I think he's trying to tell us in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1. Now, if you listen to Keith read this passage or if you've read through it yourself, um, it's a little interesting how Paul tries to lay this out. So I'm going to preach the whole text, but I may not preach it in sequential order. And I think you'll see why in a moment. But I think there's two things that Paul is trying to get us to do in this passage. The first one is to examine false teachers. And the second one is to rebuke false teachers. So I want to talk about both of those, looking at the different verses within this passage. So first of all, let's talk about how can we examine false teachers. Well, Paul describes for us what false teachers look like, and he starts doing that in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Insubordinate means to be rebellious, to buck up against authority, to not want to follow the rules. So what has Paul been talking about? He's been talking about how can we appoint elders? How can we have a well-ordered and healthy church? It starts by appointing elders. The reason we need to do that is because you're going to encounter people who don't want to follow the rules. You're going to encounter people who are insubordinate. Notice what else he says, who are empty talkers. Have you ever met somebody like that where they can just fill up a room with all the things that they're talking about, but it's empty Other translations might say idle, useless talk, void language. Paul says you need to be careful of these people who are rebellious, who are rebelling against your authority, Titus, that I've given you on the island of Crete. You need to watch out for people who are empty talkers, whose speech has no substance. But notice, not only was their talk empty, but their talk was deceitful as well. They were talking endlessly about nothing, but the other things they were saying were things that were trying to deceive people, that were trying to leave people astray. They're trying to point them in the wrong direction. And notice Paul says there are many. There's not just one that you need to watch out for. There's not just a couple, but there are many there who are doing this. He says, especially those of the circumcision party. Now that phrase that Paul ends verse 10 with, that tells us a little bit of what's going on, doesn't it? Who would be part of the circumcision party? Well, we can imagine it would be Jewish people, right? Be Jews who were trying to convince people that while there was the gospel, while the gospel was true, you still needed to be circumcised. And that circumcision was part of being in the family of God. And Paul has to fight against this a lot as he's, starting churches as he's preaching the gospel to people, especially to Gentile believers. Now, what do we know about Titus? We know that he was an apostolic delegate. He was somebody that Paul appointed to be over the island of Crete. We also know that Titus was a Gentile. And we know that Titus was not circumcised either because Paul brings him to Galatia for that very purpose. He wasn't circumcised. And so as he's talking about You know, some people are insubordinate. 
Some people are empty talkers. Some people are deceivers. These were people that Titus was very familiar with. These were people that Titus probably had rebelling against his own authority because Titus was a Gentile. So these people had a Jewish background, and they were trying to add circumcision, along with many other things, to the gospel. So as we notice their lifestyle, we see their speech, we see what they were saying, and then look with me, we're going to come back to verse 11, look with me at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I've always thought this was interesting. Why does Paul include this verse in scripture? He's obviously quoting someone, somebody that he calls a prophet. And the best that biblical scholars can come up with is that he was quoting a poet named, I'm going to see if I can get this name right, Epimenides. He was a poet that was born about 500 years before Christ. Paul calls him a prophet, not because he was of God or had anything spiritual to do with them, but because he was right. Because he said this about 500 years before Christ was born, so even more time before this was written. But he was describing the Cretans, and he himself was from that island as well. So in one sense, he was describing himself, and this is what he had to say. He said that they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul is saying, you know what, he's a prophet because he's exactly right. This is how the people were acting. He first of all says they're liars. They were all notorious for lying. It wasn't just one of them. It was the entire people on the island. In fact, that term to be a cretin or a cretin is still used even in some circles today to talk about somebody who is deceitful, to talk about somebody who is insubordinate. So they are always liars. They are evil beasts, or maybe your translation says wild beasts. There were some beasts on the island of Crete that they had in mind that were wild. And so um, the poet here, Epimenides, calls them wild beasts, which means they are uh, irrational, means they're untamed in their behavior, means they're uncontrollable, they live by their passions. And then notice the last phrase, lazy gluttons, has the idea of living by your stomach, of being controlled by your impulses. They would rather indulge in feasting and in all these parties rather than working and having an honest job. So can you imagine somebody coming to your town and saying these things about you or the people that you lived with? But this apparently was true. Now some read this and they accuse Paul of stereotyping, of even being racially insensitive towards these people. But notice, Paul isn't saying these things himself. He agrees with them, but he's quoting a Cretan or a Cretan. He's quoting someone who said this about the people on the island. And so what is Paul trying to say here? Not only did they act this way, not only were they liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, but their own people are saying this as well. Their own people admit to this lifestyle. Their own people admit to doing these things on the island. They were living this way and they were perfectly fine with it. And apparently they had been for a long time because the poet Epimenides said this about 500, 600 years before this actually, this letter actually took place. And so we can examine false teachers by 
how they live. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But notice we can also examine those who teach false doctrine. We can examine their lives. We can examine those who teach false doctrine. Look with me at verse 14. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. What were these people teaching? What were they getting people involved in on the island of Crete? Well, they, first of all, were trying to get them to believe Jewish myths, things that were added to the gospel, things that had some kind of Jewish background, probably circumcision, probably other things as well, that were interesting, that were somewhat biblically related, but that weren't important. They were just myths. They were not truth. These were things that they were trying to add to the gospel. So Jewish myths and notice the commands of people. Maybe your Bible says the commandments of people. Rules that people were making up. Notice they're not the commands of God. They're not the commands of the Bible. Rules people were making up, adding to the Christian life that were not necessary. <coughs> now the Bible does include commands, right? It includes that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. There's other commands that flow back into those two. But these were not biblical commands. These commands were not related to that. But they were the commands of people. They were the commands that served these teachers well. They were commands that prospered their own theology and their own way of thinking, but they were not related to the Bible. When I worked at the YMCA, they had, maybe you've heard of it, a gaga ball pit. It's like this giant pit. It has a ball in it, and you hit it around with your hand. It's a big game that all the kids will play. And I played this when I was a kid. And so one day I decided that I would play this and get in there, and you're supposed to hit it with your hands. And um, we'll have to play as a church sometime. But you're supposed to hit it with your hands, and you get really muddy and stuff. Anyways, as I was playing it, I kept losing because I kept hitting my leg with the ball. But the reason I kept losing was because they kept changing the rules and they kept adding rules that were not meant to be part of the game. Because when I played it, I knew exactly what the rules were supposed to be. These people were adding rules to the Christian life. They were adding these commandments of men, these things that were not part of the gospel. They were additions. They were myths. They were things that were not necessary. Again, it probably included circumcision. It probably included a lot of other things as well. We can tell who a false teacher is by their lifestyle, by the way they live, by the way they act around people, by what they teach. Is it part of the Bible? Is it in addition to the Bible? Is it contrary to what Scripture says? But lastly, we can also see, we can examine those who profess a false gospel. Paul escalates this argument. He continues to describe these people on the island of Crete, these false teachers. And verse 16 is, in my mind, very chilling in his description of them. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. That word profess is one of my favorite words in the entire Bible. It is uh, the word that we get our word for confession from. So when 
John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the same word that's used there. It means to say the same thing of. And in our culture, we think of confession as like a police confession, right? Somebody goes to the police, they confess to doing something wrong. That's not what it meant in those days necessarily. It meant to say the same thing of. When we talk about doctrine, when we have a doctrinal statement, we as a church confess doctrine. We say the same thing together about these truths of God, that God is good, that God is um, one God, that there is a trinity. We confess these truths in Scripture. And so as he uses this word here, he says they are confessing. They're trying to say the same thing as us. They're trying to profess to know God. They are trying to say that they have a relationship with God. And many people do this in the words that they say. There are a lot of people who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I know who God is. I have a relationship with him. But notice what he says. They deny him by their works, their lifestyle, their teaching, the things that they do, do not exhibit true Christian faith. And so notice what Paul says. He gives them the, I think, the harshest um, criticism that he could come up with. He first of all says they are detestable. This means to be sick or to be abhorrent. They make Paul sick. He cannot stand the sight of them. Secondly, he says they are disobedient. Not only do they make Paul sick, but they will not obey. They will not come into order. They will not be part of a well-ordered church. And then lastly, they are unfit for every good work. We know that the book of Titus emphasizes sound doctrine. It emphasizes good works as well. Well, these people are unfit for good works. They're unable to do anything that is good. Now, you might say, well, I know a lot of unbelievers who do good things, and that might be in one sense true, but any of the good things that these people do do not come from the right motivations. They do not come from knowing God like they should. They do not have a relationship with God, and so they're unfit to do any good works. We can... See these descriptions, we can see these types of people in our world today as well, can't we? People who want to add to the gospel, people who want to say it's the gospel, it's knowing Jesus, it's having a relationship with him, but it's also this, it's also works. Some people say it's also baptism. Some people say it's also confession and doing all these sacraments and different things to add to the gospel. And we must be very careful. There's a lot of people in our day that are trying to prescribe their own brand of Christianity. It's Jesus plus social justice. It's Jesus plus politics. It's Jesus plus these different issues. And it's perverting the gospel. We must be careful of these people. We must watch out. We must examine people who are trying to teach us. We need to be careful how much stock we put into their Voices. I can't tell you how many times I have people come to me, their family or friends or someone else, and they recommend a sermon to me, they recommend a book to me, podcast from somebody who is not proclaiming the gospel, who is not a true believer. So we must be very 
careful. So how do we know what the truth is? If there's so many people who are trying to lie, there's all these people who are trying to scam us, how do we know what the truth is? Well, in John 17, it says, Sanctify them with thy truth. Thy word is truth. How can we know what's true? How can we know what the right way to go is? It's through God's word. God's word is the ultimate guide for all truth. Yet too many times we put it on our shelves. Too many times we ignore it as it's being taught. We must be faithful to God's word as it explains to us what the truth actually is. We must be careful and faithful to study God's word, to know what it is actually trying to say. We must be faithful to read God's word every day, to have it dwelling in our hearts. Something I'm trying new this year, just for myself, I've got a friend that keeps me accountable on this. I'm trying to read through the entire Bible in a year. I've never done that before. I've never read through the entire Bible in a year. It's confession time from your pastor. And it's been so nice for me to just walk through the story of scripture, to walk through all these stories that I've heard before and I've heard preached and taught and maybe I've taught them before, but to go through the entire Bible and see how the story of scripture unfolds. Are you faithful to read your Bible? Are you faithful to study God's word to see what it actually says? And the more we know truth, the more we understand truth, then the quicker we are to sense when something is not right. My brother Trenton, who's here playing piano for us oftentimes, he's very quiet. He doesn't talk very much. But Trenton knows what truth is. It's really, really funny because we've been places before and we've heard someone speak and they've said something that's maybe not right. And Trenton's very quick to say, you know, whisper over to me or something and say, that's not truth. Like, that's not right. Now, he might not say it out loud to that person, but he knows what the truth is, even if he doesn't talk a lot. And why is that? Because he studies truth, because he's heard it taught well, because he knows the Bible. So if we're going to know what false teaching is, if we're going to know who is trying to teach us something that is not true, we need to know the truth ourselves, don't we? And study the Bible. Finally, we must be faithful to teach the truth as well. The church, as it says in 1 Timothy 3, is a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's something that stands for truth in the world. And if the church doesn't stand for truth, then no one else is. If the church doesn't stand up for truth and tell people what God's word actually says, then nothing else in the world is going to stand. The church is the only thing that's promised in Scripture to stand against the gates of hell. Christ says that death and hell will not prevail over the church. So we need to be faithful as a church to teach the truth, to study the truth, and to share truth with others. And examine people who are teaching as well. But Paul not only wants Titus to examine false teachers, to look at them closely to see what they're saying, but he also wants them to rebuke false teachers. Let's look at verse 13. This testimony, talking about the prophet or the poet that had talked about the Cretans in that way, this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. How do we handle people who are teaching God's word wrongly, 
Paul says to rebuke them sharply. Now that word rebuke, we often have negative implications of it, and it's not a great thing, but it means to convince someone of wrongdoing. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to bring them into a room and yell at them for 40 minutes about how wrong they are, but it simply means to convince them that what they're doing is not right, is not true. And notice he says you need to rebuke them sharply. This means severely or abruptly. He wanted them to remember this. It didn't mean that Titus was not to be loving. It didn't mean that Titus was to be abusive in how he handled them. But they needed to remember that what they were teaching was not right. It needed to make an influence in their lives. The Cretans needed to pay attention to this. What Paul is really saying is that their entire lifestyle of how they're living, of how they're acting, of the doctrine they're teaching is not right. And so if you're going to make a lifestyle change for someone, if you're going to show someone how to change their entire life, then this needs to be done sharply. This needs to be done in a way that they will remember it. Paul is telling Titus that you can't just stand by and let false doctrine or false teaching be done, but you need to stand up for the truth. You need to stand together for the truth. Remember the people that Titus was ministering to. These people who were Gentiles, people who might not have been Christians for very long, they would be susceptible to false teaching. They would follow along in this way. In fact, look with me at verse 11. Talking about these false teachers, it says, they must be silenced. You need to shut them up, Titus. You need to stop them from talking. And why is that? Because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Why did Titus need to be faithful to rebuke these people to stop them from spreading their lies and false teaching? Because it was upsetting the community there. It was ripping families apart. It was disturbing the entire structure of the church. And that is what false teaching does. It destroys churches. It destroys families. It upsets the whole balance of things. So Titus needed to be faithful to teach the truth, to rebuke these people who were teaching the truth wrongly. He needed to rebuke their lifestyle. That's really what he's saying here in verse 13. As he's quoting Epimenides on the Cretans' lifestyle, how they're lazy beasts, how they're liars, how they are insubordinate. Paul says, this is true, so you need to rebuke them. You need to show them how to change. You need to show them a new way to go. So many of you know the Super Bowl is tonight. Um, I'm a big football fan. And yeah, some of you may not know. That's okay. Uh, One of the teams in the Super Bowl is the Cincinnati Bengals. And what I find so interesting about them is that last year they won four football games in the entire season. And their quarterback that they just drafted got hurt. Maybe you don't know the story and maybe you don't care to know, but I'm going to tell you anyways. Uh, Their quarterback that they drafted got hurt. And so this is his first full year healthy. And not only did he lead them to the playoffs, not only did he lead them past some teams, but now he's gotten them to the Super Bowl. 
And there's been a lot of journalism and documentaries on how this all has happened because the team was a disaster last year. I mean, they really were not a good football team. But their quarterback, Joe Burrow, for some reason has turned the entire franchise around from being a laughingstock to now playing in the Super Bowl. And I've listened to interviews and people talk about the game, and he's really showed them a different way to play football. You know, if you're part of a losing organization, if you're part of a losing team, you kind of get used to losing and you get used to showing, to knowing defeat. But Joe Burrow says, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to start winning. We're going to start changing things around. And so it not only changed how they played in the games, but he changed how they practiced. He changed how they watched film. He changed everything about the organization to where now they're in the Super Bowl. Now, I have no idea if he's going to win tonight or not, but that entire franchise has been turned around. Life changed, changing not only a few things about someone's life, but the entire way that they interact, the entire way that they live is something that takes time. It's something that Paul says needs to be done sharply. You must rebuke their lifestyle. Secondly, notice with me, we must rebuke their truth as well. Paul's been talking about their lifestyle in the first couple verses. We get to verse 14. He's saying you need to rebuke them so that they're not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. He's saying you need to stop them, Titus. You need to stop them from giving their lives to these things, from being caught up in this web of false teaching. You not only need to rebuke how they're living, but you need to show them that what they believe is not true. What was their truth? Well, notice what it says at the end of verse 14. Commands of people who turn away from the truth. They might know or have an idea of what the truth is, but they've turned away from the truth. It means they've made the truth whatever they want it to be. They get to decide what truth is, not the Bible. And we know that this happens in our world today as well, that there are people who are trying to make the truth whatever they want it to be. And in fact, as you get into higher education, people are trying to teach that truth is subjective, that truth is relative, that there is no absolute truth, that there is no right and wrong, but that everything is subjective. But we know that God's word is truth. We know that he sets a standard for what truth is and that people need to follow his teaching on the truth. So notice what he says in verse 15. He uses this kind of confusing paradox here. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and consciences are defiled. What does he mean by this? Well, he's first of all saying for people who are pure, for people who know the truth, then all things are pure. What he's really saying is if your heart is pure, if your heart knows what it means to be holy, then the things you are going to do are pure as well. The things that are going to come out of you are pure. All things are pure. But if your heart is impure, then you're going to say that everything else is impure as well. It says, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So it doesn't matter what you do, but only impurity, only evil, only deceit is going to 
come out of your heart. And why is that? Because your mind and conscience is defiled. The mind there is our reasoning, the way we process information, the way we understand things. The conscience is our moral compass. It's supposed to show you what the right thing to do is. Some people think it's Jiminy Cricket or something, but it tells you what right and wrong is. And Paul's saying that your mind and conscience is defiled. He's saying that Jiminy Cricket is not telling you to do what the right thing to do is. And that leads into verse 16. We should rebuke their faith. Why do they live this way? Why do they act this way? Have you ever wondered that? Why do false teachers do this? It's because they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They do not have a relationship with God. They do not know who God is. There's no place in this text where we can think that these people are believers. And so therefore, it's no surprise that Paul says they're detestable, they're disobedient, they're unfit for any good works. Why did they do all these things? Well, they didn't know God. And if you look at verse 11, it says they were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Maybe your Bible says sordid gain. They're teaching things that they shouldn't for money, for pleasures of the world. If you remember that word sword gain or shameful gain, it was used in the pastoral qualifications saying you shouldn't hire a man, you shouldn't appoint somebody to be a pastor or elder who is fond of shameful gain. If you notice in these verses, verses 10 through 16 of Titus, they are the opposite of what an elder should be. An elder should teach truth. He should hold fast to the word of God. He should not be fond of shameful gain. He should be hospitable. He should only say things that are true. He should be above reproach. And these people acted in the way that was the opposite. These people were sane and doing things that were the opposite of God's standard of living. And yet, think about our world today. Think about even the churches in America today. And which list best defines some of those people? Which group of people are more popular? Which group of people have a bigger standing? I'm afraid most often it's people who are empty talkers. It's people who lie. It's people who are deceitful. It's because they deny God. It's because the world is set against God and his standard for living. So we must stand for truth. We must, as Paul says, rebuke these people. How do you respond to false teaching? What do you do when you hear something that is not the gospel, that is not the truth? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we should rally up in pitchforks and throw tomatoes at people and do all of those things. We should be loving towards people. We should speak the truth in love, as it says in Ephesians 4. But we must be faithful to speak the truth to others. We must be faithful to show people what it means to be a Christian, to rebuke others for their lack of truth. In times when we need to confront people, we should show love. We should be firm. Paul says that you need to rebuke them sharply, but we should be loving 
towards them. We cannot ignore false teaching. Then we must also, like I said earlier, stand for the truth as a church together. Not only stand for the truth, but also live lives that are motivated by truth as well. It's not just what we believe, but also how we act. Is your life different than these people? In your speech, are you trying to tell people what is honest, or are you trying to deceive them? Are you insubordinate? Are you respecting authority as well? I've got two final questions for us to think about as we close this morning. First of all, how do we examine teaching that comes into our lives? What do we put that through? How do we think about that carefully? Do we match it up to God's word that is guiding us into all truth? We must be careful. Not everyone who says they're teaching the Bible that is teaching truth is. Secondly, how can we be faithful to teach the truth to others? Paul was writing to Titus who was talking to people who were very young in their faith and they were very quick to be deceived. And so Paul wanted Titus to be careful to teach the truth faithfully to them, to show them how to live lives motivated by sound doctrine. And friends, this is part of having a healthy church. A healthy church involves appointing elders appointing men who live lives motivated by truth and faithfulness. But it also means not having false teaching as well and being careful when false teachers come into our midst. In the next chapter, in the next few sermons, we'll talk about how this truth, how this understanding of sound doctrine leads to lives that are different, lives that are different from the people around them and that are motivated by grace. But until then, we must stand for the truth. We must stand against false teaching. And we should praise God for giving us the Bible, for giving us his word, which we know is always true. Let's